This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and today I'm joined by Katie Bors and Charles Grant, Director of the Centre for European Reform. It's a breakthrough coming on the Northern Ireland Protocol. London and Brussels have been locked in negotiations over amendments to the protocol. And today, the Times reported that a partial agreement may have been made. Charles, to begin with, maybe you can remind listeners of what the disagreements over the protocol were. What were the problems from the perspectives of London and Brussels that they had to kind of iron out were? Well, the reason why there's a protocol is that when the British decided to leave the EU, everyone agreed it'd be a bad idea to have customs checks and other checks on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, because one of the reasons why we have a sort of peace process is because those those border checks were reduced, removed. And the protocol basically says that Northern Ireland, because it's staying in the EU single market, has to stay in the single market to remove those checks. There need to be checks on goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, and to some degree, goods going the other way. So there needs to be some customs checks and other sorts of checks on goods going across the Irish Sea. But the this obviously creates some inconvenience for businesses in Northern Ireland and also threatens the unionist sense of identity. So the DUP, the largest unionist party, and a lot of the people in the Conservative Party, particularly in the ERG part of the Conservative Party, don't like the protocol and would like it torn up. But they're not, it's not going to be torn up. It's going to be interpreted in a different way, but it won't be torn up. Mm-hmm. And, and the landing zone that was being reported today talks about a green and a red lane. Can you just explain whether or not something like that could work and what that looks like? I think this is where the EU is going to give some ground to the British. Goods going into Northern Ireland, if they are destined to stay in Northern Ireland, will go through a green lane with minimal checks. But if they might have a risk of going into the Republic of Ireland, they'll have to go through the red lane with stricter checks. That's perfectly common sense. And I think the EU will give the British most of what they want in that respect. The more difficult issue is probably the so-called governance of the agreement, because for the EU, the European Court of Justice must be involved in policing its own single market. Northern Ireland is in many respects staying in the EU single market. But the role of the Court of Justice is very controversial with some people in the Conservative Party and certainly with the DUP. So that's, that's I think, the most difficult issue is whether we can find a way around that. The, the EU will not agree to any deal which doesn't give the ECJ quite a large role in policing the single market. Mm-hmm. And Katie, from the perspective of Westminster, what is the way to get the DUP and also the hardline Brexiteers within the Tory party on side with that? Well, there'd be no role for the ECJ would be the easiest way. But mm. as, as Charles had just pointed out, there's lots of reasons why that seems very unlikely. You could have a situation where the ECJ is where you go to, but you have steps before you get there. That could be seen as a potential compromise. It's interesting that this morning, lots of reports, one of the times saying a deal is very close. I've been hearing that they may enter the tunnel, the final stages for some time now. And also this idea that quite a few of the technical agreements may have been made but they're not yet being announced so there's lots of intrigue and Downing Street won't really go anywhere near it because mm. I think so they've, they've been trying they to don't want to, yeah I don't think they want to preempt and I think careful political handling is required from both sides when it comes to Westminster and Brussels on anything that is agreed but we don't have to think too far back to know how contentious a lot of this can be and therefore I think there's a question which is A lot of the language from the UK government has been trying to separate the issue of the protocol from the issue of DUP Mm. consent. So you've had the Foreign Secretary, for example, say, um, you know, 
for this, this finding a new arrangement on the protocol and there's getting the DEP support. Whereas if you think back, and this is for obvious reasons during uh, the Theresa May era, it was almost because she was in this confidence and supply agreement, uh, there was so much focus on the DEP has to say yes. Now, of course, if the DEP don't like this, or they say it doesn't go far enough, that raises a lot of questions about the executive at Northern Ireland. But I think the language from the government is almost trying to make it two separate things. There's also an interesting question as to will there even be a vote on this? So you had Keir Starmer saying, we're going to lend you the votes for Rishi Sunak to get anything through in terms of the protocol it'll be good for the economy if we can have better um trade relationship here but at the moment i don't think there is specific legislation because the northern Ireland protocol bill that's been going for the house is about unilaterally rewriting parts whereas the idea is if you can come to an agreement you would no longer need that bill but i think as one wise mp did say to me you know if MPs want to have a vote on an issue, there's often a way where you can find an amendment, you know, latch it onto something to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And Katie, just on another issue, often this week it does seem like Boris Johnson was still Prime Minister with the amount of headlines and just appearances that he's been making, uh, making a video on social media about Brexit anniversary yesterday and today kind of wading into this row about whether or not the UK should give jets to Ukraine. Tell us about his intervention. So Boris Johnson has been speaking about Ukraine and he has suggested that uh, Western allies should forget about Putin and send fighter jets to Ukraine. This intervention came hours after the Prime Minister said the move was not practical. And it's worth pointing out that the US have also said it's not practical. Mm. As, as we know in this podcast and the magazine, there's been a big focus on tanks recently. I think that Boris Johnson's interventions on Ukraine are interesting. I'm not sure number 10 would use that word. They might call them difficult in the sense that Boris Johnson is going further than the UK government position on a few things. So you also had a week or so ago Boris Johnson saying that Ukraine should be allowed to join NATO. But of course, when Boris Johnson was prime minister, he wasn't saying that. Mm. And therefore almost... The freedom that comes with no longer being in the office of number 10 does, of course, mean you can say more what you really think. But I think when you have quite a you know, close successor in that position who has those restraints, it's, it just adds pressure on Rishi Sunak. Whereas I think ultimately Rishi Sunak is not going to go much further than the US in various mm-hmm. positions. If you want to know what the UK is going to do, it's worth looking at what the US is going to do. And is trying to have a you know to show that he has a similar enthusiasm as Boris Johnson on these issues but that is the Boris Johnson who was prime minister as opposed to Boris Johnson who can now say whatever he wants. And Charles presumably this is also not the position of those in the EU. Zelensky is meeting EU leaders on Friday but you know I mean not that they necessarily care about what Boris Johnson says but I mean it does just show that actually when it comes to the Western alliance there is this fear about escalation that now that you've given the tanks the question immediately becomes well what about the jets? Well on the jets there's a lot of virtue signaling going on Macron says he might give jets Britain and America and Germany say they won't the truth is it's not really relevant for the war this year it takes so long to train pilots to fly particular sorts of jets it's not going to make much difference this year the military experts I talk to talk to say what the Ukrainians really need are ammunition, air defence, armoured fighting vehicles, precision guided munition, munitions and drones, things like that. And that's really what's more important for the campaigns to be waged in the next few months. But there is a summit with Ukraine on Friday, and it's going to be quite difficult for the EU it's in the summit with Ukraine, because there's been a lot of people, talk, particularly in Brussels, Mrs. von der Leyen, the president of the commission, talking up the prospect of Ukraine becoming a member of the EU relatively soon. The reality is that's not going to happen. It takes years and years to join the EU. France, Germany, Italy and others would insist on big changes to the way the institutions work, to the way the budget works, the way the farm policy works. So there's going to be, have to be a lowering of expectations. The, the real question, I think, for the EU and vis-a-vis Ukraine is, can it maintain its unity? The unity has been quite impressive so far a year into the war, but there are two 
competing camps within the EU have very different views. On the one hand, you have the Baltic countries, Poland, sometimes the Nordics and Romania, who want to be very tough on Russia, don't negotiate with the Russians, never trade land, land for peace, don't talk to the Russians at all if you can possibly help it. And then you have the French, the Germans and the Italians who are closer to Joe Biden, who say, actually, in the long run, Russia isn't going to go away. You have to talk to it at some point. Don't humiliate it. We have to find a way of building a relationship with Russia in the long term. Those two camps completely disagree. But at the moment, they're holding together because Putin's behaviour has been so awful from everybody's point of view that there's no point in talking to him at the moment. If Putin was cleverer, he could try and split the West, split the Europeans by offering land for peace. He could say, look, we'll pull back to the Donbass and Crimea and withdraw from the rest of the land we conquered. How about, how about, how about getting peace that way? Then half the Europeans would jump at it, I think. Half would, be, would, would not like it. So I think Putin could split the Europeans, but hasn't chosen to do so yet. Mm. And this is something that also we look at in the upcoming issue of the magazine on the cover article with Owen Matthews, who talks about the ways in which the war could end. And Katie, finally, today is Wednesday, so there was also Prime Minister's questions at lunchtime. How did that go for Rishi Sunak? I mean, Nadim Zahawi is now gone, so did that help? So clearly it meant that Kistama could not go at Rishi Sunak for still having Nadim Zahawi in his cabinet, but I think he still said, well, what did you know and when? And then also moved conversation to Dominic Raab. And now Nadim Zahawi's gone from cabinet, it's very much, I think, the attention of the press is on this ongoing, for some time, investigation into the Deputy Prime Minister and allegations of bullying. Now, we don't expect the turn... Uh, return for several weeks but the fact that with every day that passes there seems to be you know more reports of oh, another allegation has been unearthed maybe in a complaint made previously but you know coming to the press's attention it just is dialing up so that wasn't particularly comfortable for Rishi Sunak but yet despite all I think the problems Rishi Sunak has right now it wasn't that bad a mm. Prime Minister questions for him. Um, you saw quite a few people after saying, you know, ambulance for Keir Starmer. Now, I think that might be a little bit of an exaggeration. I mean, he was still standing. Um, <laughs> but Rishi Sunak, for example, went at Keir Starmer saying, you know, well, you don't stand up for women in your party, obviously referring to Rosie Duffield, the recent gender debate. Now, that's something which clearly unites and rallies the Tory benches. And I think there are a few points like there are actually almost because, I think it sometimes happens at these sessions, when because you feel the odds are stacked against someone if they can just land a few blows or hold it then and then they surprise and Kirsten didn't really go on strikes at all when you think about all the strikes that you know are mm. happening this week obviously the teachers strike which would be very noticeable mm. this uh, this idea that you know strikes to have the same level of impact I think might work with lots of sectors when we think about working from home how we snap back but it doesn't really work for teaching and instead it was his backbenchers who were left really bringing that up so I wonder if perhaps he could have you know, honed his topics a bit better. Mm. Well, speaking of strikes, we are very grateful to you, Charles, for joining us as you uh, look after your son today instead of him being in school <laughs> as, a, as one of those parents without um, childcare for, for the day. Charles Grant and Katie Balls, thanks so much. And thank you very much for listening.